Astonishing Legends would like to thank The Great Courses Plus, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In early February of 1931, James Byron Dean was born to Mildred Marie and Winton Dean in Marion, Indiana. Just two months later, in April, an Austrian-German automotive engineer, Ferdinand Porsche, founded a consulting firm in Stuttgart, Germany that would ultimately design and build the car that newborn child would eventually die in, the Porsche 550 Spider. Only 90 of them would be built, and the 55th one of those 90 would meet its end and take Dean with it at a notoriously dangerous junction known to locals in the tiny town of Shalam as the Y. This fork in the road had seen its fair share of death, both before and after Dean's accident. It's strange to think that both James Dean and Porsche the company were just 24 years old when he and the 550 Spider he affectionately named Little Bastard were utterly destroyed in a flash. If you've ever learned anything from listening to Astonishing Legends, it's that there's always so much more to the story than one might think. Dean was more than just another young, good-looking actor. He actually had talent. He was also as multidimensional and complex as the 550 Spider was itself. And like the car, he seemed happiest just past the edge of safety. Dean had an obsessive fascination with death, according to one of his dearest friends, someone we've talked about on the show before, the strikingly beautiful and famously wasp-waisted Myla Norby, better known as Vampira. You may remember that in episode 127 of Astonishing Legends, when our guest was Joe Bob Briggs, we led that show with a history of television-based horror hosts, and Normie was one of the first ones on the air. Like Dean, her legend endures, and her macabre perspective on who he was is fascinating. However, it turns out that Dean's death in the Porsche 550 is only part of the story. Little Bastard was not finished wreaking havoc upon the world. It was, after all, an exceptionally rare car, and parts for it were tough to come by. So the parts that could be salvaged from Dean's car were sold off and used in other Porsches and similarly built race cars whose owners were still racing them on tracks all over the world. As fate would have it, many of those parts and even the creaking hulk of a wreck that went on a national tour as part of a highway patrol safety exhibit were reportedly not done killing and naming. In fact, some will tell you that little bastard was, and is, still cursed. It's hard to know where that wreckage is today, as it vanished in 1960 and hasn't been seen since. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Dream as if you'll live forever. Live as if you'll die today. James Dean. Join us tonight for part one of our series on the death of James Dean and the infamous car that drove him to it, Little Bastard. Nice. Hey, folks, we're <laughs> glad to be back with you as we continue into the closing months of 2019. A few quick notes before we get started. The first one being a correction to the Velisca story that was requested 
by the relatives of some of the folks caught up in the investigation of the original crime. Not too long after we ran the shows, we heard from a descendant of Roy Van Gilder who wanted to put something right regarding an apparently often made mistake. During the episode, we mentioned that Lee Van Gilder was a suspect in the murders. Lee was Sarah Moore's nephew, and we mentioned that he was a bit of a ne'er-do-well and possible suspect. That was a fact we took from multiple published sources. However, it turns out it was not Lee who was the suspect. It was Roy Van Gilder, who was Lee's father, actually. So to make that clear, it was Roy Van Gilder who was thought of as a potential suspect in the murders, not Lee, as we mentioned in the Velisca series. In fact, it turns out that Lee was a fine, upstanding citizen, and not only that, went on to be a well-respected law enforcement officer in Madison, Wisconsin, before he was killed in a car accident in 1934. The family was understandably concerned about having him be misrepresented. We'd like to thank them for giving us the opportunity to put that straight. Indeed. And I have another quick note about Velisca. We've been receiving tons of letters and comments, uh, one especially about the mirrors. I just wanted to say we did come to learn about the superstition and the religious practice of covering mirrors in our research, but we didn't really get back to talking about it. So we're very aware of that in that it was a Victorian practice, either for a superstitious reason of possibly being seen in the mirror, being trapped in the mirror, seeing the dead in the mirror, seeing yourself with the dead in the mirror, all these variations. Plus, there were Jewish religious traditions about covering mirrors. So thank you very much for your letters and comments. We're very much aware of it. And you can tone down the letters now. <laughs> and now let's move on to the 20th century and automobiles. But wait, <laughs> no. uh, in other news... Weren't you just on another podcast again? I was actually on a show called America's Next Top Podcaster, which is a reality podcast <laughs> competition show. Yeah, I guess it was pretty fascinating to be on there. Yeah, that sounds like a really cool idea, actually. And I'm really excited to hear it. But why were you on it? In what capacity <laughs> would they ever have you on there for doing what? Uh, yeah, I was wondering that myself. I was actually a judge. The The new really? podcasters, yeah, the new podcasters had to create investigative shows and investigative podcasts, and I was a guest judge that did part of the evaluation. It was a lot of fun. All righty then. Well, folks, I guess if you want to hear Scott pontificating on what makes a good podcast, which I'm not convinced either one of us know anyway, really, then find America's Next Top Podcaster wherever you get your podcasts and look for the series on investigative podcasts, which just came out. Scott, which ep are you in? I'm in the one that came out November 3rd, but you should go back to October 31st for the first part in their most recent competition. Aha. Well, very good then. Well, there is something else we may have totally missed the boat on <laughs> telling people about on social media, at least. But there was a Halloween night offering from us. It was just on another podcast. We did a 30 minute story for our good friends, Jerry and Tracy Polly over at Hillbilly Horror Stories. And I'm sure they both gave up on us getting something to them on time for their 2019 Halloween special. But we did manage to surprise them with a creepy tale to include, which they were kind enough to post on Halloween all by itself. So if you want to hear us talk about a story that freaked me out as a kid, the Chase Vault, or as I knew it, it was called the Moving Coffins of Barbados, head on over to Hillbilly Horror Stories to hear us have a little spooky good fun. And be sure to check out their full Halloween special, which posted on October 28th, and is a whopping three and a half hours of 20 other podcasts, 
all telling terrifying tales. See, we're not the only ones who could put out a mega show. <laughs> yes, but we're still the ones who deliver late. Always to everyone, and including <laughs> ourselves, yes. In other news, folks, we are working on some new merch just for the holidays, so we'll keep you posted about that during the show. But let's just say you're going to want to be ready around Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and you don't have to camp out to get the deals unless you want to camp out in front of your computer. That's pretty much what we do. We're <laughs> trying to work on the show. It's where we camping. live. Yeah. yeah, I know. It, it, I feel grungy like camping. Anyway, well, we're going to have some pre-order limited edition stuff coming out, and we wanted to warn you because some people missed the boat on Halloween this year. So keep listening to find out what we've got coming down the pike. All right, we got a big show, so let's get into it. I have been wanting to cover this for a while. I feel like, not before we started the show, but since at least the first year when it popped into my head, I was like, I think this would be pretty cool. Of course, I'm a car freak. Everyone, anyone who listens to us. Is, what? You like yeah. cars? Yeah. I, I've <laughs> yeah, never know, heard, I've never, ever yeah. heard that <laughs> mentioned by you at all. I had no idea. That's, I know, I know. And then the further uh, I go, no, the more you, guilty <laughs> I feel about it. Yeah, I, I am into electric cars too, for the record. Uh, but yes, I'm, oh, I also. Oh, stop with that. No, no look, it's I a know, classic. It's a, it's a classic of an era. And also we're talking about two icons. I wanted to talk about this for a while too. Just before we did the podcast, I think you and I would discuss it a little bit because we like curses and cars and car curses. Yeah, car curses, things like that, anything that's cursed, especially James Dean was a huge icon, not only in his day for that brief period that he was alive and in the media spotlight from a struggling actor to a Hollywood icon, but the car itself is also another icon yes. in the automotive world, not just with Porsches. Yes. It's a known thing. I think the design of it and that brushed metal look to it and the sleek design and you combine those two plus a tragedy that stuck with a lot of people that shocked them at the time and continues to, you got a great story there. We were joking around a minute ago about all these 90s icons we all had in our college room. Some of us had Nagel prints. <laughs> I had the James Dean, like five foot tall poster in my college room yeah. at the University of Washington. Your dorm you know, just room? that yeah. look he gave. And I think part of his appeal and his mystique was the brooding looks, the pensive kind of stare that he would give and his performances. And there weren't that many of them, but it made such an impact that any image of him is kind of like Patty the Bigfoot. Yeah. You see it, you know who that is. There might be a lot of people who are younger than uh, 30, maybe, who don't know who he is, but have seen his image and don't really know a whole lot about him. So that's another reason to cover him tonight. I agree with you. Both him and the car are iconic. And this is what's really amazing to me. And somehow this keeps happening to us. Just today, there is headline-making news about him. The day that we're recording this, it's actually November 6th. Yes, sometimes we get way out ahead, but this week we're not. And <laughs> we were recording this just a few days before it needs to go out. But right here in The Hollywood Reporter today, there's a big article called James Dean Reborn in CGI for Vietnam War Action Drama. And this is an exclusive article written by Alex Rittman in The Hollywood Reporter. I want to read this excerpt for people just to give you an idea. The cultural icon who died in 1955 will return to the screen via CGI using actual footage and photos for Finding Jack, in quotes. That's going to be the name of the project, Finding Jack. I think pretty much everybody knows this nowadays, but CGI means computer-generated images. And this is taking the deep fakes thing and making it into a movie. <laughs> 
with mm. a dead actor. And if you listen to more of the article here, it says, James Dean, who died in a 1955 car crash at the age of 24, is making an unexpected return to the big screen. The cultural icon known for Rebel Without a Cause and East of Eden has been posthumously cast in the Vietnam-era action drama Finding Jack. Directed by Anton Ernst and Tati Golyik. I'm probably not saying that right. Apologies, Tati. The project comes from the filmmaker's own recently launched production house, Magic City Films, which obtained the rights to use Dean's image from his family. Finding Jack is based on the existence and abandonment of more than 10,000 military dogs at the end of the Vietnam War. Dean will play a character called Rogan, considered a secondary lead role. A secondary lead after all these years of being dead. It says, quote, we searched high and low for the perfect character to portray the role of Rogan, which has some extreme complex character arcs. And after months of research, we decided on James Dean. So anyway, we have a link to that article in our show notes if you want to check it out. But I just can't believe we sat down to record this today. And mm -hmm. that comes out today. It's blowing up my Apple News app everywhere. It's like James Dean is everywhere suddenly, just as we're getting ready to cover him ourselves. Well, you're one step closer to AI bringing people back from the dead as in the movie Her, where you can take all the bits and knowledge of somebody and their, their voice and images and with big data crunches, construct them as if they were a renewed consciousness. So that's a little freaky that you can just cast actors all throughout history now. Yeah. Charlie Chaplin would be good for this role. Let's bring him back. Yeah. It's very odd. But speaking of bringing things back, the other thing I was going to add is that have you ever seen a Porsche 550 Spider in person? An authentic one, not a kit. Yes, I have. Oh, cool. I've seen cool. both. In yeah. fact, I was over near Radford Studios in Studio City not too long ago, just a few months ago. I looked over at the light and there was one sitting next to me. And mm -hmm. I couldn't exactly tell, but I'm pretty sure it was Ryan Reynolds, I think, was driving it. And, um, <laughs> that definitely fits. It, sure. Yes, it was a very sharp-looking young man, um, yes. young compared to me anyway. And yeah, the car was gorgeous, but that was a kit. Yeah. I actually had a friend who had an actual 550 Spider. Yeah. And we're going to be talking to him before we complete this series about the experience of purchasing and owning one and the right. regretful decision to sell them. Because I'll tell you right now, I looked on Hemings Motor News just last week as we were researching this to see what they were going for. And the one from Seinfeld's collection was listed at $6 million. Yeah, that also makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, just the rarity of it. There were only 90 of them yeah. ever built over the course of three years. So It's a cool vintage car. If there were 200,000 made at the time, it wouldn't be worth that much. Right. And that's just rarity makes the price go up, of course. But I've seen a few, I I believe, at car shows and whatnot that were purported to be authentic. There's a few of them, and I think the Peterson had one on display once, and I've been to right. a few car shows and seen them there as well. Right. But it's probably the same one, honestly, because all that was in L.A. <laughs> There's not a lot of them floating yeah. around. I was going to talk about an authentic one that I saw quite a bit of, hours and hours and hours of, but only on film footage, because I used to work for a company where Porsche was our client, and we would produce their business meetings their dealer meetings, and corporate videos that were meant to be inspirational and some were public-facing. But I had waded through and archived and logged so much Porsche footage. There was a cool shot that our film crew got to see, and they flew to Stuttgart to go to the museum there. And they got the 550 Spider out of the Porsche Museum, and they were allowed to film with it. Now, the thing is, it didn't run. It didn't start up. So they kind of faked it where they shot the front end of the car 
and they had a couple of dudes from the museum push it. So it looks like it's creeping out of the museum front doors, but it's actually being pushed. But right. that one, you know, is genuine. Yeah. I wished I could have gone to Germany to see that myself, but yeah, that's amazing. It's just very cool. Well, one of the things that was really interesting to me about James Dean was that he had a connection to somebody we've talked about on the show before, Myla Nurmi, who created the character of Vampira. I don't know how many of you may remember. Some of you might have skipped that one because you thought it wouldn't be interesting, which I would say never do. They're all interesting. Except, well, <laughs> there's, there's always something in there. There's, there's always, always an angle. Yeah. And a connection. Case in point, 31 episodes ago, back in December of 2018, almost exactly a year ago, we did an episode called Hosting Horror with our special guest, Joe Bob Briggs. In that episode, we talked about Myla Nurmi. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of background about her because she developed the character of Vampira. Myla was discovered after she attended a costume ball in Los Angeles dressed as that character, Vampira. And that was based on the New Yorker cartoonist Charles Adams' character, that he had created for cartoons in The New Yorker. That character would eventually become known as Morticia Adams, but at the time Myla dressed up as her, that family hadn't been named yet. She was just an anonymous, macabre cartoon character that he had drawn regularly for these cartoons in The New Yorker. She brought her own thing to it, though. Morticia was married and had a family. For her, this character that she was was a, a single woman and very campy, and she took additional inspiration from the evil queen in Snow White as well as other vamps because she had a fascination with that gothic vamp-type deal. That was the magic sauce because this single flirtatious vampiress with the wasp waist was so compelling that Hollywood came calling and she was offered her very own TV show on ABC, which was an enormous success. Her fame grew quickly and exponentially. There was no question that she was magnetic and on top of that, wildly talented. She performed the show live and didn't even see the scripts until she came out on camera and read them off teleprompters. No rehearsals. Every single episode was a cold read. That's really hard to do for those of you, you know, people haven't usually been on camera themselves, but to read it and look natural like you're not reading, and especially if you haven't never seen it before, that's a real skill. Yeah, as we can attest, because we still sound like we're reading when we're reading and talking when we're talking, <laughs> but we're trying to get better. Hey, it's five He years. just read that. That was just <laughs> him reading that. Yeah. That's true. Uh, what Nermi <laughs> was exceptionally smart for someone who catapulted to fame in the early days of TV. She knew she had a good thing going. So when ABC tried to buy the rights to her character, to Vampira, she, of course, was made a very bad offer, and she refused to sell. Unfortunately, taking the right stand creatively led to them canceling Vampira, and Myla's star began to fade. And there clearly were concerns later about intellectual property. Myla Nurmi lived to be fairly old, and she told these stories in a lot of interviews and some people said, well, she borrowed so much of it from Charles Adams, but mm. she brought a lot to it and wound up making it different. And later, I think it was eight or nine years later after Vampira went off the air, the Adams family came out and started to be a thing, which she didn't get called to do, which is a tragedy because she really was the ultimate Vampira. She was Morticia in a lot of ways. So after ABC refused to make a good deal for her. They actually canceled the show, even though it was doing so well. She wound up making appearances in several B and C and worse grade movies, including Ed Wood's infamous Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is widely regarded as the worst film of all time. Although <laughs> you can obviously have lots of debates about what the worst movie of all time is, but it's supposedly no, no, there, there has to be one, though. I, yeah. I mean, I it, love it. I think it's a great movie. I really enjoy it, but only because yeah. it's so bad. It's one of those movies that is good at being bad, so it's still entertaining. 
Well, Hollywood is littered with stories of stars like this that just missed the boat of opportunity. But usually they missed it because they were taken advantage of. In Myla's case, she missed it because she refused to be taken advantage of, which is pretty impressive. It turns out back in the day, everyone knew that Myla and James Dean were pretty good friends. They wound up hanging out a lot together during his brief time in Hollywood. And we'll talk in a minute a little bit about how they met. But there was more to what drew them together than meets the eye. Their relationship was very complex. It was a mixture of friendship and maybe more, but also maybe not. A lot of authors will tell you that Dean was very open about his relationships with both women and men. And in one of the books we read for research on this show, author Warren Newton Beath, B-E-A-T-H, I'm actually not really sure how to pronounce his name. I did look everywhere online for him, but he's kind of a ghost. I feel like it might be a pen name. But anyway, author Warren Newton Beath seemed to feel that Myla and Jimmy were drawn together by their similar energy, intelligence, and overall lust for life. From what I gathered from reading Beath's book, Two Sides of the Same Coin, Perhaps Cosmically Connected. And speaking of which, Beath's book is called The Death of James Dean, What Really Happened on the Day He Crashed, The Untold Story Behind the Mystery. And it is a pretty cool book. It has a lot of amazing details in it. I really enjoyed reading it. We'll have a link to it in our show notes if you're interested in checking it out and you want to know more about this story. But coming back to the type of people that they were, Dean was truly excited about life. He was interested in all kinds of things, painting, music, traveling. He wanted to do everything. But on top of that, he had, there's no question, a fascination with death. And that is one of the things that Myla Nurmi said. That's one of the things that a lot of people said. And in fact, you're going to hear that a lot of people seem to know that he seemed to be headed for an early end to his life. Myla Nurmi and Jimmy Dean had such a close friendship that they met up nearly nightly around midnight for almost a year with another mutual friend, Jack Simmons, at a famous Sunset Strip eatery called Googie's. Googie's was at the corner of Sunset Boulevard and Crescent Heights on the Sunset Strip, right next to the infamous Schwab's Pharmacy. Now, if you've never heard of Schwab's, listen to this excerpt from a good description of it on foodrepublic.com. We'll have a link to it as well. Besides filling prescriptions, the brothers, meaning the Schwab brothers, also ran a soda and lunch counter where their hot fudge brownie sundae was a big seller. According to Hollywood lore, Lana Turner was discovered while drinking a milkshake at the Schwab's counter. Writer F. Scott Fitzgerald reportedly had a heart attack at Schwab's while purchasing a pack of cigarettes. It is said that composer Harold Arlen wrote Over the Rainbow for the Wizard of Oz on a Schwab's napkin. Once, Humphrey Bogart reportedly asked Leon Schwab for a hangover cure, and Schwab told him to stop drinking. Bogart was not pleased with (laughs) Schwab's retort and replied that he was not looking for a lecture. Well, you don't correct bogey. (laughs) And Mm. the the Lana Turner thing has been disproven. She was uh, discovered down the street. I can't remember where, but she was not actually discovered in there. No, it was at the Top Hat Cafe, which was across the street on Sunset Boulevard from Hollywood High School, where she was still a student. Yeah. And it wasn't director Marvin Leroy who discovered her. It's reported as... Hollywood reporter publisher William Wilkerson. So there you go, another legend that's sort of close, you know, but yeah, isn't that so she was discovered, yeah. And we just at the top of the show read an excerpt from a Hollywood reporter article all these years later. So that's there you go. Well, yeah. you can see why people would have been hanging out at Schwab's though, because it was right next to Googie's and they would have been hanging out at Googie's as well because the word was out that this is where all the young, good-looking up-and-comers would be. So agents maybe are down there eating and everyone's just kind of... And and there's still spots like this in LA where you know you're going to see people. I don't know how many people are getting discovered out in the wild like that, but 
there's a reason that the wait staff at all the shops in Hollywood, all the restaurants in Hollywood all look like actors. It's because they are. And they are they <laughs> yeah. are hoping that they might wait on that right person because the bit parts aren't paying the bills. But by the time Vampira became a hit, ABC Studios was actually providing Nermi with an open-air chauffeured Packard to be driven around in. And their mutual friend, who actually eventually moved in with Dean, Jack Simmons, drove a Cadillac hearse, which I think is pretty awesome. So you can imagine these three riding around in this hearse, Vampira and James Dean. Now, here's an interesting aside. While Nermi would eventually marry three times, her first husband was a child actor who appeared as a four-year-old in Charlie Chaplin's movie, The Pilgrim. And he actually grew up to be a formidable screenwriter credited as the man who wrote both Dirty Harry and Charlie Varick, which you've probably never heard of, but you should watch right away. And why is that? Certainly Quentin Tarantino has seen Charlie Varick because he lifts a line <laughs> directly from it. In the uh, Pulp that Fiction, he uses right? In Pulp Fiction, yes. We're talking about mobsters using a pair of pliers and a blowtorch to gain information from one of the lead characters. So it, yeah. isn't that interesting that that would have been written by Vampira's first husband? that movie, who was a child actor in a Chaplin film. It's just crazy. you know. Well, it's a small community, really. I mean, Hollywood is big, yes. It's a very exclusive club, you could say. They all kind of know each other. They all kind of rise up together. And in this case, here you have really two actors, James Dean and Myla Normie, very kindred spirits here, both having a somewhat macabre fascination, you could say, with death and darkness. They both were prescient. They had uh, dreams that would come true in the future or visions or ideas. Now, according to Beath's book, The Death of James Dean, which I just mentioned, in most books gloss over the accident itself, which of course we're going to be talking about. But getting back to my point, Beath's book mentions that Myla Nermi dreamt that she would meet James Dean in 1947, and meaning she had the dream in 1947. That's a very poorly worded sentence on my part. Uh, <laughs> but this would have been uh, before he was even famous and eight years before she actually met him. Listen to this quote from Beath's book. One day in 1947, when she was 25 years old, Myla Nermi had a vision. She suddenly saw herself as much slimmer, four inches taller, and with the burning eyes and pallid skin of a vampire. She was walking into Ciro's with a blonde young man following. The honey-headed boy stepped on her train. She turned her head to look back, and in a moment, he was gone. The vision evaporated. It would be eight years before she understood the dream. And again, that's from Warren Newton Beath's book, The Death of James Dean, published by Grove Atlantic, and that's from the Kindle edition on uh, page 19 in the Kindle edition. Ciro's was actually a famous nightclub on the Sunset Strip where literally everyone who was anyone in Hollywood used to hang out. It's still there. The building is still there. It's now the comedy store. And drove, terribly haunted. Yes, of course. And terribly yeah. haunted, famously haunted, primarily, it is thought, by the ghosts of Ciro's. There's actually a comedian who used to perform there, and he also was a security guard. Mm -hmm. His name's Blake Clark. And he apparently witnessed and heard a ton of stuff going on there, with, from the piano playing in rooms that nobody was in, to people walking around on floors that shouldn't be there. He went up because he thought somebody was trapped in a room. He heard someone playing the piano. He opens the door. The room's empty. Another time he was locking up the back and then he heard something upstairs. He turned around and he looked and there was like 40 chairs stacked on the stage, like in an instant. Mm. And that's the mm. kind of paranormal activity that I love to hear about. So uh, yeah. yeah, I'm going to put a call on him. We need to have him on the show because it sounds like he's got some amazing stories from the comedy stores. But this idea of a dream is interesting because if this is true, this actually would have been her dreaming about her own future too, because it was six years before she created Vampira and then eight years before she met Jimmy 
And as you'll hear tonight, Dean had some premonitions of his own. According to Beeth in his book, one night at the aforementioned Googies, Dean apparently walked in while Mila was sitting with some friends, and she purportedly said to them, Jesus Christ, that's the only guy in Hollywood that I want to meet. <laughs> Which I think is kind of funny because she obviously could meet anybody she wanted to meet. I'm sure they were all trying to meet her. But she's mm -hmm. basically saying, I don't care about anyone. I want to meet that yeah. guy over there. Now, it's interesting to note at this point, she was more famous than he was. He was not really famous. He had done like a few bit parts on TV. He was an actor. He was a working actor. Yeah. But none of his films had come out yet. Her fame was never going to be on par with what his would eventually become. But at that moment, she was very, very well known, especially in Los Angeles, because, you know, when you're on TV back then, it wasn't seen all over the country necessarily. But word was out about her and about the character right. of Vampira. And you got to figure that maybe not all of the country is seeing her, but everybody who is a mover and shaker in Hollywood is watching TV and knows who she is. That's right. So when they crossed paths at Googie's, it was in 1954. And like I said, he'd been in a few TV shows. You can find a lot of those on YouTube, which is pretty cool. But East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause, and Giant, the three movies that made him world famous, had not yet been released. And like I said, at the time, Vampira was a pretty big deal. He didn't even own a car at this point. And this is what I loved getting into this, the motorhead side of me, because he had a lot of motorcycles. When he was a kid, you know, he came from Marion, Indiana, and we'll talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. He grew up on motorcycles. He had a little dirt bike from a Czech company called CZ. And uh, that yeah. was, at the time, was a huge company. Well, he's a farm boy. Yeah. So around a farm, you got a lot of acreage to roam around and check out as partly as work, but a lot of space to work on motorcycles and vehicles. At one point, I believe he rode that dirt bike all the way across the country. This was pre-interstates. He rode it Oof. all the way across the country. He rode bikes across the country a couple of times, I think. But uh, don't quote me on that. That might not be exactly <laughs> as you know. It's part of the romantic ideal, though. Yes. Yes, but it's very cool. But at the time that they met, Milo described that he had a red motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And so looking back at the history, he had several motorcycles. But the only one that I could find that was red, and I'm pretty sure this must have been the one that he had when they met, was an Indian Warrior TT, which came in maroon. When you Google this thing, 1952 Indian Warrior TT, you look it up, you can see him on it because he was moving from the dirt bike up. He was moving to faster and faster bikes. And that was another thing that he did. He just liked the faster car, the next fastest bike, the whatever he could get. And as he started making more money, that was where his money went. This Indian Warrior, actually, he had it serviced at a shop in New York, by coincidence, it's pretty fascinating, where Steve McQueen worked as a mechanic. Mm -hmm. How about that? Yeah. Pretty crazy. But later, he would get a 1955 Triumph Tiger 110, which he only had briefly before getting the last motorcycle he would ever own, a Triumph Trophy TR5. And last we heard, that very bike, his bike, is in the Fairmont Historical Museum in his hometown in Indiana. Like we said, he grew up on motorcycles, and in his hometown, where he went everywhere on that CZ bike, the locals apparently called him One Speed Dean. Now, do you know what that means? I think it means that he was just all out all the time. Yeah, his one speed is just fast. Fast, yeah. Fast yeah. as it will go. Yeah. Right, right. So if you grew up in the 70s or 80s and you find a picture of the Triumph Trophy TR5, you might also recognize it, if you don't recognize it as James Dean's bike, as Arthur Fonzarelli's bike because mm -hmm. he had the same bike. And I'm sure that was no mistake. I'm sure they chose that because it had been Dean's. Yeah. Now, Beath relays a story in his book from Nermi where she said that she and Jack, Jack Simmons, their mutual friend, would be in Jack's hearse following Dean on Mulholland on his motorcycle. And he would have his hands off the handlebars, up over his head, doing kind of a hula dance, leaning the bike down super low around these tight corners, not even touching the handlebars, which, by the way, for those of you that haven't ridden, 
you turn a motorcycle not by turning the handlebars, but by leaning. At fast speeds. Yes, at yeah. fast speeds. And you, it, it goes where you look. That's the thing you learn when you ride. Where you look, that's where the motorcycle goes. So he's obviously very comfortable on him if he's doing this, but he's running on Mulholland Drive, which is an incredibly dangerous street in the best of conditions, super windy and hilly, nothing but constant blind corners. He's running down the center line, hula dancing with his hands off the handlebars while they're following in Jack's hearse. And she said it just was so crazy, it would make them feel so dangerous because she knew that if he got hit, he was going to not only get hit, he would come back and then the hearse would hit him and it would just be a disaster. And the only way they could get him to stop was to like pull over and turn the hearse off, turn off the headlights so that he couldn't really see that great. So that's just an idea of how one speed Dean liked to roll. He was a, I don't know, I don't want to say he's an adrenaline junkie, but he may have been, he may have been addicted to that feeling of danger and speed in today's day and age. That comes from a lot of people who like to base jump and do all these super risky things. That's that feeling is that they're seeking. And maybe that's something that he was into. Well, there's a difference, I would say, in that if you can do those things like extreme sports and be an adrenaline junkie, people who do that, I believe, get an extra thrill over those other people who, who do stuff like that and are terrified and get really a thrill, but it's from extreme fear. There is something to the adrenaline part of that for certain people where They thrive on it. But there's a difference between that and being totally reckless. I think people who do extreme sports say they take calculated risks. Sure, going outside, getting in your car now, riding your bike down the street is a calculated risk. It's very easy, especially in this town, to get hit by people not paying attention. I've known three people now that have been killed on motorcycles. It's no joke, and just being on one, even if you're following all the rules and paying attention, is is dangerous, but that's more of a calculated risk. What Dean is doing here is poking the bear. He's tempting fate a little bit by doing things that he knows are a little bit dangerous, but gives him a little bit more of a thrill. And people who are really good at stuff, you'll see this, where they maybe they're a little more careless because they are good at something, and they don't pay attention as much. And then occasionally they get spanked. And that comes down to another question too, which people ask, and maybe it's more than the adrenaline. Maybe he had an obsession with death or did he want to die? And one of the things that Nermi had said was that she didn't really think he wanted to die, but that yes, he had a fascination with it. And the other thing is that his mom died when he was very young of cancer. And it was a long, slow, agonizing death for her. And that affected him at a very young age. And this is very, very sad to me because Beeth makes a a supposition or, you know, he's conjecturing in his book, but I I think it possibly rings true that after watching what happened to his mom happen, that he became so afraid of death and a long, slow death like that, actually leaning into the idea of a quick death as a way to avoid that slow death which is, you know, so sad when you think about someone losing their mom at that young age. And I have a a very dear friend, the same thing happened to her. It's a hard thing to live with for your whole life. So you can see how that might have affected him depending on the age he was at and where he was at developmentally. Because the other thing that happened was that after his mom died, his dad, uh, who had been living in Santa Monica, believe it or not, he was a farmer, gave up farming to become a dental technician, meaning he made tools for dentists. They had moved to Santa Monica But then after his mom died, his dad sent him back to Fairmont, Indiana to live with an aunt and uncle to be raised there. And he he came up a very happy child. But when you think about the big picture of all these things that were happening, you can see how it might have affected him. And Myla, this is coming back to Vampira, Myla Nurmi, her whole trade was campy takes on death, embracing it every possible way. But 
But even she was taken aback by Dean's obsession with it. And it was an obsession that was easy for anyone in the world to see. Beeth told a story in his book of Jimmy hanging a noose up in the back seat of Jack Simmons' Cadillac hearse, slipping it around his neck, and then saying to Mila as they're driving around, I guess, that's how I'm going to die. He even had a noose hanging up inside his house that he rented over in, I believe it was Sherman Oaks or Encino area, and off Ventura Boulevard in the Valley. And he was frequently photographed with nooses and ropes. And if you want to see for yourself, simply Google James Dean and noose. Oh, and while you're at it, you might as well Google Googies, too, because that's the place they used to hang out at. It's a pretty cool-looking place. I'm only saying that because I wanted to speak the phrase Google Googies. I feel like that's (laughs) going to be my only opportunity to ever do that. So Google Googies. But also, if you look up James Dean and Noose, you'll be surprised how many images will come up where he has got a noose around his neck or there's a famous picture of him standing behind one. Some of these are from publicity shoots, but he was surrounded by photographers because he was so good-looking, and all these photographers would come into his orbit and follow him around in life. So that's why there's so many pictures of him. But it is fascinating that he seemed to be convinced that something was going to happen like that. And sadly, it would come to pass because in the accident that we're going to talk about in the course of this series, the fatal injury was more than likely a broken neck, which I think a lot of people don't know. But that's something to think about. And when you think about his premonitions and the idea that he knew what might happen to him, There were a lot of people, though, that seemed to be predicting his death, and that's what's really strange about his story. Myla actually told him that Dean had read her a story by Ray Bradbury, who's one of my favorite authors of all time, and the story was about a boy who had hung himself in his garage. Well, of course, we wanted to find that story. I hadn't heard of it. I hadn't read it. So we asked the Astonishing Research Corps to do some digging And this is what came up. Uh, One of our members who's particularly good at tracking down literature, Marissa Ball, wrote into our research group that this story, Long After Midnight, which is what most people thought it was, was published in a collection in 1976. It originated, though, as a short story in Amazing Stories, (laughs) which is a magazine that we may have taken a little inspiration from when we named Astonishing Legends. Mm. But that first short story was originally entitled I Rocket, and that came out in May of 1944, long before James Dean passed away. But the one that people were thinking was the one he was talking about actually wasn't published till 1976, which was way after he died, the one that was called Long After Midnight. Uh, the Internet Archive has a digitized version of the 1944 story, and Marissa, of course, read it. It does feature a hanging, but it's a girl at first. At the end of the story, you learn it's actually a boy presenting as a girl. And girl and boy are used loosely because she's 19. So the rest of the story doesn't quite fit. There's no garage. There's no mention of a mother, which is something that comes up in this story that supposedly he had, or he either read to Myla or had Myla read to him. So as far as we can tell, there is no Ray Bradbury story that we could find that really matched that description. And this being the kind of thing I like to chase down, it, it I wanted to go further with it, but it seemed like a rabbit hole that wasn't going to lead anywhere. And Marissa looked and looked, and we also had assistance from ARC member Paul S., but neither one found a Bradbury story that could match Mila's description, which begs the question, what was Mila talking about? Could it have been another story by another author? It, maybe she was mistaken about the author, or maybe some of the details aren't quite right, or maybe we're looking in the wrong place. So if anyone listening is aware of a prominent short story that would have been published by 1955 or earlier about a boy hanging himself in his garage, let us know. Because uh, we've looked at several of Bradbury's pseudonyms. We even considered short-run zines that stories might have appeared in locally that were self-published, which Marissa brought to our attention, were around at the time, but we still couldn't find anything. 
for those of you who are interested, which is probably nobody, my two favorite Bradbury short stories, <laughs> uh, which I've mentioned on the show before, are The Velt and All Summer in a Day. Uh, if you get a chance to check either one of them out, they're quick reads and they're really fascinating. I was forced to read both of them in high school and they changed my entire worldview on what fiction could be. It's pretty amazing. And the other thing we found out in looking for this story was that Bradbury repurposed things. So it, there's actually a small section of that early version of the story, Long After Midnight, the one called I Rocket, about microbes. And it is very similar to a section of the later published version of the story, Long After Midnight. But everything else is different. I Rocket is actually a first-person tale told from the perspective of a rocket going into space. Long After Midnight is about people. So then there's this section that's ported over. You can see how modular the Fahrenheit 451 Martian Chronicles and Illustrated Man author was in his creative process and how he could and would repurpose ideas into different stories. But there's something more to the Ray Bradbury-Dean connection, though. Now, here's something that's interesting that is more of a connection to the Bradbury and Dean story. And I knew about the Bradbury predilection, I guess you could say. Yeah. But I wasn't aware of this connection here. This is something that ARC member Paul S. discovered in his research. Ray Bradbury and James Dean were distant cousins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were 11th cousins once removed. And the connection to them, both of them, is from a man that they descended from named Thomas Perkins. He was born in about 1525 in Hillmorton, Warwickshire, England. So just think. Without that guy, there is no James Dean or Ray Bradbury, two of your favorite uh, personalities. Yeah, that's crazy. And it's just to think that like that one person, uh, his offspring led to both of those <laughs> people so different and so talented in yeah. different ways, but just like cultural icons. It's pretty fascinating. What I think would be really cool is if you went back in time and Thomas Perkins was as handsome and talented as James Dean, and was also a fabulous sci-fi writer for his time. <laughs> Back in fifteen twenty. Like, yeah, baby, it all starts with me. Yeah, you know, <laughs> 11 generations down, I'm, I'll have some minor offspring here, some descendants that yeah. are kind of cool. But Let's really just say you're, you're going to be glad I was around. <laughs> exactly. Well, this rabbit hole, though, goes even further. Bradbury somewhat famously predicted James Dean's death, and he had spoken about it on numerous occasions there's a lot of premonitory things going on here, which I yeah. think is fascinating and, yeah. and spooky. Well, additionally, Bradbury, he hated cars. <laughs> I knew that he did not like to drive them. And that's kind of funny in its own way because cars, you know, in a lot of aspects, are the closest things we have to accessible science fiction in terms of their technology. But it is fascinating to think of, and if you believe in past lives, was there something in Bradbury's life that there, there was an accident of some kind? possibly with a carriage or some kind of moving device. And he's like, nope, not driving a car. Don't need to. <laughs> well, there's something else that Paul from the Ark dug up. And this is a mental floss article, which in itself was dug up from an old interview that then college journalist Lisa Potts and her coworker Chad Coates had done with Ray Bradbury back in 1972 while they were driving him to a venue in Los Angeles. I'm just going to read this excerpt here. Uh, we have a link to this article in our show notes, of course. It is called Ray Bradbury's Lost Interview on Mad Men, Writing, and Cars. And this is by Chris Higgins, dated April 28th, 2015. So this is Lisa Potts asking Ray Bradbury a question. Um, this is kind of a weird question. We had an article in our newspaper that said Ray Bradbury has never driven a car or been in an airplane. 
is that true? And Ray Bradbury says, that's right. Uh, what do you think I'm doing here in the back seat? And Lisa Potts says, you've in your whole life have never been driven. And Ray says, never have been behind the wheel. And she asks, why is that? And Ray says, oh, it, it seemed like a good idea. That's all. She asks him, are you scared of cars or scared of? And Bradbury says, I'm scared of myself. I think I'd be a bad driver. I'm scared of cars, period. I've had too many friends killed now, and I've seen too many people killed in my life when I drove across the country when I was 12. I'm sure that has a lot to do with it. If you see a few real dead bodies with brains on the pavement, it does a lot to change your attitude. It means you can get it too. I've had a lot of relatives killed. I've had a lot of dear friends killed. It's stupid. The whole activity is stupid. And Lisa Potts replies, what about, uh, why don't you like to go on airplanes? Are you scared of them too? Bradbury says, I don't like being up high. It took me three days to get to the top of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> so there you have it. Uh, Ray on cars and all things being high up in the air. He obviously didn't care for them. It's so fascinating because it's like you're writing about science fiction, all this crazy technology. Yeah. Although his stories are less technical than, say, Arthur C. Clarke for sure. They're organic science fiction in a way. They're all about human interaction and how we behave. Much to me like Stephen King's novels. It's how horrible we can be to each other, not the monster that's chasing us. Yeah, exactly. Well, Paul S. also dug up this pretty amazing sit-down between Ray Bradbury and another really talented science fiction author, William F. Nolan, who wrote Logan's Run, which you kids oh, yeah. probably haven't heard of, but you should most definitely check it out. This It was a big deal when it came out. It was a best-selling book for decades. And uh, Michael York. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and Nolan actually asked Ray about the rumors that he had predicted Dean's death. Now, this was a handheld uh, YouTube video shot in a very small, very loud room. So there's a lot of stuff you can't quite hear. It was recorded on March 10th, 2007. We have a link to it in our show notes, but it's too hard to hear to replay here. But the crux of the conversation is that Nolan is recounting how Bradbury once told him that when he met Dean at a preview of Rebel Without a Cause, that he could see a black aura or a black cloud around him and uh -huh. that he knew that Dean was going to die although he thought it would likely be suicide, apparently. This is what Bradbury thought. The audio is so bad in the video, you can't exactly make out Bradbury's response, but he's clearly confirming the story back to Nolan. And we have more on Bradbury's tale about this coming up in a minute from another source. In fact, in another documentation of what Bradbury thought might happen to Dean after that same screening, because that's where this story comes from, he had done another interview with Mark Zickery, who is a screenwriter, and he sat down with him in March of 2010. We have a link to that as well in our show notes. But I want to take this quote from it. Ray also told me at the time he met James Dean in person in 1956 at a screening of Rebel Without a Cause, he had told his companion, I see suicide in him. The companion replied, what do you mean? Bradbury said, I see it in all of him, in his eyes and the touch of his hand. He'll be dead within a year. And so he was in a fatal highway crash. Yeah. So we may never find that story that Bradbury supposedly wrote and Myla said Dean read to her, but... That doesn't change the fact that Bradbury and Dean were clearly very connected in a lot of other ways. It's as though there was an otherworldly energy that emanated between him and these other vanguards of talent. So all in all, when you look at all these people, Vampira, Myla Nurmi, uh, Ray Bradbury, and, and Dean himself, they all had premonitions about Jimmy's death, and all of them would more or less be right. The only one who might have been off a hair was Bradbury because he thought it was going to be suicide, but there's no indication that that was a factor in the accident. Was there a connection between kind of the dangerous living and the 
possible recklessness. Not that Dean was in the car, of course, in that moment, but somehow Bradbury sensing that he liked to take unnecessary risks. And there was an element there that he was pushing it, which could yeah. be seen as somewhat suicidal. I guess what Myla thought was that he, she agreed that he had a fascination with death, but she did not see him as suicidal. She seemed to be indicating that those are two different things. It's like going over and poking the thing with a stick. You want to know more about it, but you don't necessarily want to really get involved with the reality of it. It's like her fascination with the macabre and death possibly and, and you know, sleeping in a coffin for a gag than somebody who is constantly wondering what it's like about the other side and has a noose around his neck for photos and this and that, you know what I'm saying? There's a difference there where yes. she was having fun with it. He is possibly morbidly curious about it. Maybe too much. Uh, you know, you just opened up a can of emails on the pronunciation of macabre, right? We've had this no, discussion. We've already had this. <laughs> Both ways are correct. Just to let everyone know before you fire yeah. off the email about macabre and macabre or the tweet or whatever. But one is more fun to say. Yes. Macabre. Macabre. Yeah. So I think, in, I think in the cold open, I just like, let's just keep it at macabre. You went with macabre, yes. I did, yeah. it's just, I don't want to get silly with the trilling the R's. Well, going back to that William Nolan and Bradbury interview that we talked about, Nolan talks about all the parts that Jimmy actually wanted to play. And this comes around to the whole idea of suicide. He was signed up to play Billy the Kid, Rocky Marciano. He, he was on his way. Like, he had a lot of projects that he wanted to do. And, you know, the world was his oyster. Now, I think, personally, that Bradbury was psychic. And I think when he said he saw that dark cloud or that aura around Dean, he could see it and he knew something was wrong, but he didn't know how to interpret it or what it meant necessarily, other than death. And there's a connection, again, we may be working on a story later on down the road about uh, Edgar Casey. Casey could apparently see people's auras very easily without even having to stare at them for a while. It's just something that he was able to do. And he could see people having different colored auras and he could see when somebody had a black aura. And I don't know if this anecdote is true, maybe not, but I'd heard that he was once going to get on an elevator Casey, and he saw that everyone in the elevator had a black aura, and he decided not to get on. That elevator has an accident. Everybody inside dies. Right. Well, we've had psychic friends of ours and mediums tell us that people we've come into contact with have had some kind of black mass following them, and they can tell that from photos. But yeah, that's pretty Yeah, freaky. I do believe that some people do have psychic abilities to various degrees, and I think you're right about Ray Bradbury. And maybe that's where some of his great ideas came from. Well, yeah, and when you watch that YouTube video, even though the audio is so bad in it, it's clear from the way that he's telling the story that he has an ability to do something that most people can't when it comes to what he sees in other people, and which I think is really interesting, and it, and it probably plays into how great a writer he was. In terms of premonitions, I do want to talk about one of the one, another one of the ones, because there was more than one that, that Dean had himself. Uh, have you ever seen, I brought it up on the on the show before, it's one of my favorite films of all time, actually, The Cane Mutiny? With Humphrey Bogart. Yes. Fairly recently, like maybe within the last year, yes. I wanted to see it again. It's a pretty amazing film, really just fabulous script, and, uh, and it's not just Bogart that make it so great. It's just a powerhouse cast, and one of the members in the cast is Robert Francis, who... It turns out that Robert Francis, he played an, an ensign. It was like a primary part on it. I think it was Ensign Willie something. I can't remember his last name, but he was flying out of Burbank on July 31st, 1955. He was into aviation. Apparently, he was actually friends with Howard Hughes and would go flying with him sometimes, which I just found out today. It's 
pretty interesting. But he had borrowed a plane, Robert Francis did, from a friend who was an actor as well, but the friend wasn't in the plane. And he had gone up flying with that friend's business partners or partner of some kind, as well as a young starlet named Ann Russell, who was 24 years old, who was also in the Kane Mutiny. So Francis and Ann Russell had been in the Kane Mutiny together. The plane, I guess, had a bad takeoff coming out of Burbank, and he was struggling to keep it under control, and it started coming down. And Robert Francis managed to avoid taking it into a crowd that was below them. He took it over towards a parking lot, but it crashed, and it killed everyone aboard, which is pretty crazy. Francis was only 25, and Ann Russell was only 24. I'm not sure how old the other occupant was, but according to Beeth in his book, The Death of James Dean, when Dean heard about the crash, he supposedly was overheard saying, I'll be next. And his mm. accident would be just 30 days later. The final prediction about Dean that's probably one of the more famous ones came from Sir Alec Guinness himself. And as much as I wanted to say, if Obi-Wan Kenobi warns you of something, you should listen um, I also happen to know that Guinness did not care for being only known by the role as Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> uh, of course. Yes. For him, it was just a, quote, I think, little science fiction movie, yeah. end quote. But Guinness actually met Dean one night on the street in Hollywood, and it was the night that Dean got the car. And this is pretty amazing. We're actually going to play you this excerpt from an interview that Sir Guinness did on the Parkinson talk show produced by the BBC in 1977. We found this on a YouTube channel called Eyes on Cinema. We'll have a link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out. Pretty cool channel. But here is the audio from that interview. It's going to blow your mind a little bit. You also uh, met Dean, didn't you, James Well, Dean? my f very first night in Hollywood, I met James Dean. It was a very, very odd uh, occurrence. Um, I'd arrived off the plane, but those were, you know, took a long time in those days, about 16 hours flight. And um, I'd been met by Grace Kelly and various people, but I found that I was alone for myself for the evening. And uh, a woman I knew phoned up and said, let me take you out to dinner. And we went to various places, and she was wearing trousers, and they wouldn't let her in any of the smart... Hollywood restaurants, think of it, you know, whatever it was, 1952, 54, something like that. However, we finally went to a little Italian dive, and that was full. And so one got turned away. I said, I honestly, I don't mind just a hamburger anyway. I was hungry by then. And then I heard feet running down the street, and it was James Dean. And he said, I was in that restaurant, you couldn't get a table. And my name's James Dean. He said, will you come and join me? So we said, yes, very kind of him. And then going back into the restaurant, he said, oh, before we go in, I must show you something. Um, I've just got a new car. And there in the courtyard of this uh, little restaurant was a, I don't know what the car was, some little silver, very smart thing, all done up in cellophane with a bunch of roses tied to its bonnet. Uh, and I said... How fast do you, can you drive in this? He said, oh, I can do 150 in it. And I said, have you driven it? He said, no, I've never been in it at all. And some strange thing came over me, some almost different voice. And I said, look, I won't join your table unless you want me to, but I must say something. Please do not get into that car, because if you do, and I looked at my watch, and I said, if you get into that car at all, it's now Thursday, whatever the date was, 
10 o'clock at night, and by 10 o'clock at night, next Thursday, you'll be dead if you get into that car. I don't know, nonsense. So one had dinner, we had a charming dinner, and he was dead the following uh, Thursday afternoon in that car. It was one of those odd things. Where, where did, I mean, has it ever happened to you before? <laughs> no, I'm glad to say. But it was one of a very, very odd, spooky experience. He was not, I liked him very much, too. I'd love to have known, known him more. Yes. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Ella. And when our daddy is commuting home from work to places, he's listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. So what's interesting about this to me is that we can see that a lot of these people that cross paths with Dean seem to think he might not have a long time to live. And there's another thing that caught my eye about this. It's like, it's almost like his mere presence brought out some sort of psychic ability in people. Because if you look at how Ray Bradbury and Alec Guinness reacted to him, they both had a very similar reaction. It it came out in different ways. One saw an aura, like Ray Bradbury was talking apparently to uh, William Nolan about seeing a black aura over him or a dark Mm -hmm. cloud and seeing death in him in his eyes and in his hands. And then you have Sir Alec Guinness talking about, I don't know what came over me. I just felt compelled to tell him that if he got in that car, he was, he was going to die. There's something really interesting to me about that. It's almost like he's drawing that out in people. Well, yeah, it did make me wonder uh, about the possibilities or the combinations there. And you do wonder if either these two gentlemen of renown Ray Bradbury or Alec Guinness, if they have some kind of innate psychic sensibility or empathic sensibility to them, and they pick up on this a lot of, you'd have to ask them. It's a very personal thing. And I'm not sure if outside of this James Dean story, if that was noted anywhere, but you do wonder if they're able to pick that up from other people or was it just James Dean or was it a combination of them being sensitive to it and James Dean projecting some kind of strong psychic aura or vibe out there of his inner turmoil or personal demons and thoughts about death and this kind of gloominess. But you know what? I mean, he wasn't a sad sack, as I call him. He he did have a lust for life. In that uh, YouTube video that we'll have the link to of the with the really bad audio between Bradbury and William Nolan, mm-hmm. Nolan says this is not something you say every day or not something you had said to a lot of people. And Bradbury, he seemed to make a point. I mean, it's not super clear, but it seemed mm-hmm. like he was saying, no, I haven't really ever said that to anybody. Well, yeah, you do wonder if it comes from the person or it's a combination of people that they meet, if it's not happening all the time. But speaking of people like that, you know, some people do have a very magnetic, dynamic presence or aura about them. And it can be a very big personality, a very big presence. Uh, We have a friend who talked about meeting Robert Downey Jr. and felt that he had that, that he kind of charms you, he enchants you, and you feel like you'll do anything for this guy. He's that kind of big, charming personality. There you go. Yeah, tons of charisma, and that's why he's a big, lovable movie star. But at the same time, it can be a shy or quiet persona, a calm and intense demeanor, one that James seems like he had in person. If you ever watch interviews or clips, you know he was a brooding, intense type. He smoldered, and there was a new type of acting coming around during this era of Hollywood cinema. And I'm not sure if you could officially tie that to the method acting where it's a different style and approach and training of acting. And you saw it with Marlon Brando and even Montgomery Clift, where it was this 
exposition of intensity of deep emotion side and drawing from within yourself. And it could be moments of silence on screen where you're just sitting there brooding. But all of these actors I just mentioned, you couldn't help but be glued to the screen. James Dean did learn or did study under Lee Strasberg and yes, study okay, method well, acting yeah. specifically. Well, there you go. Yeah. But it seems like those actors, you know, they could be quiet and intense with just a look and then explode on screen with emotional drama. And that's what James Dean had. If you watch these YouTube clips of him where people have posted their most favorite clips of him and just the three movies he was in, you'll see that where he's kind of quiet and then he just explodes on the screen and you're, you're riveted. And then you watch interviews with him and he seems kind of quiet and shy and withdrawn. So it's that kind of duality. But either way, these people command your attention. And perhaps if you have this way of broadcasting this inner intense personality, it can come out psychically to those who are sensitive enough to perceive it. If you've ever been around someone who projects chaos, anxiety, drama, anger, neediness, or desperation, you know what I'm talking about? Sure. People sometimes described as emotional or energy vampires. You'll know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. But maybe if James Dean was haunted or dominated by the sense of impending doom or death, one that was kind of rattling around in his brain that he couldn't get away from, that inner angst could be radiated and picked up by those around him. And it's enchanting, but it also haunts those people around him as well. Just a thought. Maybe that's part of what he what he learned at the actor's studio. Who knows? He said, you know, there's a quote from him about the actor's studio where he says it's the best thing that could have ever happened to an actor. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Right. There's another thing that I also thought was really interesting about him, and I got this from Beath's book, The Death of James Dean. He was fascinated or obsessed with bullfighting. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, bullfighting memorabilia. That was, for him, the ultimate metaphor of man facing death or facing his own death. And on top of that, he was a big fan of Hemingway. And if you're familiar with Hemingway at all, you know Hemingway was a big fan of bullfighting as well. And he wrote a book entitled Death in the Afternoon, which is a nonfiction take on the history of bullfighting. And in it, Hemingway talks about the differences between fear and courage, which all of this aligns with everything that we know about Dean. And Death in the Afternoon also looks at the existential nature of bullfighting and how, as an activity, it relates to life and death. And of course, now bullfighting is, it's very controversial. And even back then it was, Hemingway addressed it in the book. It was a, it's a controversial sport. Some people don't even like to call it a sport, but that whole idea in the book and Hemingway was the perfect vehicle for Dean's fascination with life and death. He was as alive as anybody could ever be. This guy was on the edge of life. He was living life fully, but at the same time, it was a paradox because he was also fascinated with death, especially the idea of a quick death. You can be so full of life, but I think in the back of his mind, he knew that it was also a way of pushing yourself to the edge of that life and maybe crossing over into death. You're, you're taking chances. You're taking risks, which is what we talked about a little bit earlier here. These both are death through an outside acting agent. One would be fast motor vehicles or bulls, both with their own formidable power. This being opposed to taking one's own life, which is a direct singular act. In the case of both cars and bulls, the race car driver and the bullfighter are both pushing this outside force, pushing each to its limit to exhibit the pinnacle of performance and excitement, but at the same time, almost taunting each, daring each to try and do your worst. You know, see if you can kill me before I get the reaction I crave out of each of you in the process. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Or does that make any sense? No, I absolutely do. And you know what else is fascinating now that you mention it? I'm just a little bit of an aside, but you know, Lamborghini, their logo is actually Raging Bull and yeah. all of their early models were named for bulls and actually some of the more recent models. The Mura was named for a family that bred bulls, which is the famous early car that they built. They also had the Islero, the Espada, the Uraco, uh, named after mm-hmm. famous bull breeds. And even more recently, from 2011 to uh, the present day, the Aventador was named for a famous bull and the Huracan named for a famous bull that fought in 1879. So yeah. that actually goes even further, your whole idea there. And, and of course, uh, Dean never had a Lamborghini, but uh, had he lived a little bit longer, they weren't oh. around when he was alive. Uh, right. If they had been, right. he certainly would have been interested in that, I think. Again, it's that duality where you are lusting for life. You're you're living life to its fullest. And for most people's tastes, probably a little too dangerously, but you're using this other device to tempt it as a tool. So yeah, with motorsport racing, certainly there's some people who think that's dangerous and unnecessary, but a lot of people find a lot of thrill with it. You are taking a risk, but that's life. Your more exciting moments are ones that possibly bring you closer to an early death. Well, talking about that escalating risk, this was something that was inherent in James Dean's personality. He went to faster and faster motorcycles Then he started getting into cars, of course, and then he got real interested in racing, and he actually acquired a Porsche Speedster 356 Pre-A. That's getting a little too nerdy for everybody here, but uh, the people that might know about Porsches are the early Speedsters. The 356 is the car that was the predecessor to the 911, so if you're trying to imagine what this model looks like, this car, the most recognized one in pop culture is the one that Kelly McGillis drove in Top Gun. If if you saw Top Gun, <laughs> right. you know what this car looks like. They also called it a bathtub Porsche because it looks kind of like an upside down bathtub. But uh, it's a beautiful car. Yeah, it was very round and, and bulbous uh, yes. you know, from the top. Yeah. yeah. And so the Speedster that Dean had, that was a production car. It meant that it was actually in production. Anybody could buy it. And he raced it with the number 23F on the door. I looked and looked to try to see what that meant. Couldn't ever find any reference to it or why that was there. That's got to be a bit of trivia that somebody knows somewhere. But the VIN number, the vehicle identification number or serial number for that particular Speedster was 80126. And it too had disappeared for 60 years, only to reportedly resurface in May of just last year in 2018. So that's pretty fascinating to me. Now, according to a Facebook group dedicated to that particular model, specifically the 356 Pre-A, this car was discovered by complete chance after being sold as a project car. So it's like a garage find to somebody in France who then looked up the number. And for 20 years, it had been sitting somewhere, I guess. And they looked it up and they're like, oh my God, we have James Dean's Speedster. Now, according to somebody in that Facebook group, which I went over to, but I'm, I'm not in and I didn't think they were going to let me join. <laughs> so I can only read <laughs> I can only read the one post about this car. But on that post, it said, as of last year anyway, it was in need of total restoration. And then there was a post from just 38 weeks ago that said that it's now in Italy somewhere. But they hadn't posted any photos of it. At least I couldn't see any, which I imagine they're going to be very cagey about. Because when you have a car that valuable, the security goes way, way up. But... It's interesting to me that they may have actually finally found that speedster. So maybe we'll be seeing about that here in the news pretty soon. During the filming of Giant, his last film that came out actually came out posthumously. His contract forbade him from racing, but he had also signed for an annual salary of $100,000 a year, which is a ton of money in 1955. And as soon as principal photography wrapped on Giant, he bought his next race car. He had loved racing the 356A, but as we said, or pre-A, I should say, it was a production car. 
Warren Newton Beeth points out in his book that Dean wanted to run real race cars with larger engines and the 1100 to 1500 cc class. That left only the 550 Spider. Not only was the engine the right size, it was dominating the races and Dean decided that he had to have one. So here's a little bit about how he came to that car. We're going to talk just a little bit briefly about the car. No, I'm the car guy here. I've been talking about this for years on this show, and I'm going a little deep just, here. You, just you know what, stick just start with your us. own car podcast. I, I know. Just, just do it already. <laughs> just, just, just stick with us for a minute. I promise not to get too in the weeds on these specifications for those of you who are bored. But the 550 <laughs> Spider was only produced from 1953 to 56, and as we said, Porsche only made 90 of them. It is technically a mid-engine car, like most Ferrari and Lamborghinis, and even now the new Corvette, that was a big deal that they've switched that from mm-hmm. a front engine to a mid-engine, so the new one that's coming out. This means the engine is situated in front of the rear axle, but it's behind the passenger compartment. This is ideal for balance, weight distribution, and performance. It won the very first race it entered in 1953 and almost always finished top three in its class. Each one was custom-built to be raced, but it was also meant to be driven on the on the street. And so that was a crossover, but it wasn't necessarily the ideal street driving car. No, it was pretty squirrely like a lot of Porsches were, especially the racetrack ones. But the popular saying of the time was that the 550 Spider was a race car that the race car driver could, you know, you could race it on the track during the day and then just drive it home afterwards. So it wasn't like a lot of track cars, which are not street legal. This one was street legal and it was that kind of hybrid, but I, it's more really a track car to me. Yeah, and that's a mantra that you mentioned that Porsche tries to stick to today. And a lot of the higher-end supercar manufacturers, they're like, oh, you can drive us to the grocery store, or you can go to the track and beat everybody. So the 550 had a 1,500cc engine, or 1.5 liters, which would put it at the very top engine size it could be and still race in that class that Dean was interested in. Had a flat four boxer engine, which is the same kind of engine that Volkswagen Bug has. But I mean, this one obviously was way more sophisticated and had more power, but that's why you're able to get it down inside such a small car. It had double overhead cams, two valves per cylinder, and was incredibly sophisticated for its time. It generated 108 horsepower, which doesn't sound like a lot, but the car was so light, it could go from zero to 60 in seven seconds, which is very fast for 1955, had a top speed of 135 miles an hour. And it was ultra lightweight because it had an aluminum body and an aluminum engine block. So that's why it was so fast. Its power to weight ratio was extreme, which made it a great race car. And there's another thing about owning it that you should know. There actually was a little bit of an issue with it being too light, which I have a friend that, as we mentioned earlier, that used to have one. We're going to be talking to him a little bit about that next week. One of the dangers of driving this car at speed. Well, yeah. And the Porsche innovation that they brought to racing was that you didn't need to have big block, large displacement engines to get a lot of power. They generated a lot of output from a small block engine right. and that that flat cylinder design there. So when you hear the term flat four or flat six, it means that the pistons are horizontally opposed instead of like a V8, which is that the pistons are operating in a V shape or a straight inline cylinder arrangement. So they were able to get a lot of performance by engineering smaller engines, lightweight vehicles, but also at the same time, one of my favorite race cars, the 917A, was so squirrely. It was so powerful. I think it had like 1,100 horsepower, but it was dangerous. Yeah. And that's the point we're trying to make here is that it's a tremendous amount of power at a light vehicle, dangerous to race on the track sometimes, and sometimes dangerous out on the street. Yeah. And there's a lot of parallels there that we're going to talk about in part two between the 550 Spider and the Carrera GT, which is what Paul Walker died in all those years later in almost an identical type of accident. 
So there's something to be said for that. I'd like to share this excerpt from page 31 of the Kindle edition of Beath's book, The Death of James Dean, just talking about the sophistication of the engine. And I'm not doing this to drown you in technical facts. It's not that long. Don't worry. I'm doing it because I want the listener to understand why Dean was so enamored with it. He had a lot of money, and this was his chance to get a real race car. Here's the uh, excerpt from the book. Quote, the Spider owed its success mainly to the Type 547 engine, the revolutionary design which elevated Porsche to world status as car builders. The brainchild of Professor Ernest Furman, it had been developed in secrecy. During practice for the German Grand Prix in 1953, a new car was seen, which even sounded different. The Porsche men would not open its bonnet or allow the engine to be photographed. And Ferry Porsche himself, that's Ferdinand Porsche, who founded the company. Yeah, that was his nickname, Ferry. Yes, when he was talking about it, he conferred in undertones with the drivers and mechanics. The secret was an air-cold flat four with four overhead cams, two dual-throat carburetors, a roller-bearing crankshaft, and dry sump lubrication. The valve gear, this is very complicated. Even if you don't understand it, you can understand that it's got complexity to it. The valve gear consisted of nine shafts, 14 bevel gears, and two spin gears. The designer described it as, quote, thermally symmetrical, end quote. This meant that the engine could expand and contract with temperature changes without requiring any adjustment of the valve gears, and that was a big breakthrough. So that shows you how sophisticated and unusual this car was, but it was also incredibly finicky. Beath goes on to point out that it took an expert mechanic 120 hours, and this was a mechanic who specialized in this particular engine, to assemble one, and 8 to 15 hours just to set the timing. That's where we get to Dean's mechanic, Rolf Wuthering. He was Porsche employee number 42, and he had gotten sent to the U.S. to take care of these cars, not just the 550s, but Porsches in general, for affluent Americans who lived in the Hollywood area and the Beverly Hills, and they were wanting their cars fixed and, and maintained well by Porsche, and they're obviously trying to expand their brand and cater to these clients. So he was out there as a liaison between the company and potential customers. And Wuthering had Dean come in and take a look at one of these cars. He took it around the block, and he apparently came back and described himself as a, quote, gone cat, meaning that he wanted this car so bad. And it was $7,000. Now, in 1955, that translated to today's dollars. That's about $68,000, if you can imagine that. But he had that $100,000 contract, and he agreed that he would buy it, but only if Rolf came with him to every single race that he was going to take it to. And Rolf agreed, wanting to make the sale. And the rest is history about what happened to those two guys later on. So now let's talk about what actually happened with the car the day of the accident and the events leading up to it. Now, although some folks will tell you that George Barris, the famous car customizer who made the Batmobile and the Monstermobile and all these cars, for especially for TV shows of that era, they say that he painted the number 130 on the hood and doors as well as the words little bastard on the engine cowl in the back. But it turned out it was not Barris, but a pinstriping expert and another customizer whose shop was next door to Barris named Dean Jeffries. James Dean had met Dean Jeffries, this can get a little confusing, through a mutual friend, Lance Reventlow, whom you're going to hear more about in a minute, and another race car driver named Bruce Kessler. Those two guys had introduced James Dean to Dean Jeffries. And his shop, as we said, was next to George Barris's. So the following account here about how the numbers 130 and the name got onto the car, Little Bastard, is actually confirmed by Porsche historian Lee Raskin, who wrote an amazing book about James Dean titled At Speed. This is a really good book on him if you wanted to read another book about the subject. 
I want to take this uh, excerpt from Wikipedia, which itself is taken from the book At Speed. Jeffries recalled the day in September 1955. Jimmy knew that I was a pinstriper and had met me through Lance Reventlow and Bruce Kessler. He drove to my Linwood shop in his new 550 and asked me to paint a temporary number 130 on the front hood, rear deck lid, and both doors of the spider in flat black washable paint. He also asked me to paint Little Bastard on the tail section in the same font script. I painted it with one shot, a gloss black enamel paint, as this would be permanent. It turned out great. Jimmy thought that the little bastard looked so cool across the bottom of the tail section. That's from the guy who actually put that stuff on that car. It is really cool looking. The font is cool. It's iconic. Jeffries actually, and this is a little aside, he also built all the vehicles for one of my favorite 70s trucker movies, Convoy. And he built the Landmaster from Damnation Alley, which I've brought up on the show before because I used to drive by his shop over here on Cahuenga and see it sitting out there. And I knew it from the, it was a TV movie called Damnation Alley. And before I knew anything about all this, I literally just learned today as we were researching this that that must have been his shop because that thing was sitting over there. And for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, Google the Landmaster and Damnation Alley. It was the Citizen Kane of apocalyptic TV movies. But the, mm. but the Landmaster is the real star because it's this funky, amphibious thing that look, <laughs> you know that you would want in the apocalypse. I digress. Jeffrey was actually slated to do the original Batmobile as well, but he couldn't deliver on the timeline the studio wanted, so he turned the project over to George Barris, who had a guy at his shop build the Batmobile, and that's one of the cars that really put George Barris on the map. So as you can see, all this stuff is connected. It's a very small community. So James Dean's friend, Bill Hickman, was teaching him how to drive like a race car driver. Bill was super into cars. He knew how to fix them, how to repair them. He was also a stunt driver and a small-time actor. And in fact, Bill went on to drive and appear in both Bullet and the 7-Ups as a heavy and a driver. And he was also a stunt driver in the French Connection as well. Yeah, don't you find it interesting that I think before we even got into the meat of this research here for Little Bastard and James Dean's story that I sent you clips of two car chases. You know what it was? I was supposed to be researching and writing something late at night and I was uh, distracted. (laughs) Instead, I was watching car chases from famous movies. And one of them was from the seven ups. I can't remember what uh, made me think of that, but if you, Watch that clip, of course, on YouTube. Another car chase clip will come up. And, of course, the most famous one, I think, with people and viewers is the one from Bullet. That's the thing, though. That 7-Ups clip you sent me, Bill Hickman was driving the car in that. He is the on-screen actor driving the car, and it is an amazing chase. But I didn't even know that. I hadn't seen the 7-Ups until you sent that chase. That's the only piece of it I'd ever seen. And now here we are talking about the guy driving the car and his connection to James Dean. Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of a weird coincidence here. But as I'm about to say, what's significant about Bill Hickman and this story here, it's not the Fast and the Furious. There's obviously some great stunt drivers in all the contemporary movies now. But a lot of that now relies on CG and and special rigging and stuff. And if you watch these movies like Bullet and the bad guys are about to be chased by Steve McQueen in his Mustang and they're in a black charger and the guy driving that's Bill Hickman. Yeah. What's funny is that he's supposed to be a bad guy, but what I loved about watching the movie is that he could be a heavy, but he's wearing these horned rim glasses and he's got nicely cut hair. And the other guy, I think, I think he's blonde and he also has close cropped hair. They look like they could be insurance salesmen. <laughs> but what I loved is that they're, they're both real bad guys. Like the one guy's got a shotgun. He's going to try and shoot back at Steve McQueen. 
Steve McQueen is trying to chase them down. And of course, the perfect scenario is the streets of San Francisco with all its hills and tight turns. And you get to see California back in those days. And that's halfway between uh, San Francisco and L.A. is near or nearly halfway is where James Dean had his accident. Right. But my point with this is that this was not relying a lot on CG, on computer generated effects or rigged effects. You know, nowadays, when you look at the Fast and the Furious, it relies on a lot of those, plus some very decent stunt driving, of course, and very skilled, talented stunt drivers. But back then, those were guys driving big, beefy American cars really fast. And you can yeah. see the body roll and hubcaps flying off and over and under steer and just skating. And that was what a car looks like when it's really being driven fast. And it's not really meant to be driven that fast. That's why the 550 Spider being low to the ground and small and maneuverable, but pretty squirrely was a great race car. But if you want to see Bill Hickman drive like that, those are two movies, that and the seven ups. Well, you know, it's funny. Myla Nurmi said that he looked like a killer and she didn't really like him. Oh, really? Part of the reason she didn't like him was because I th- I think because she took Jimmy Dean like away and out of her life yeah. and she missed hanging out with him. And I think she was envious of because he was spending so much right. time with Bill learning how to drive. As the day approaches, he's a little more worried. Here's a guy who's so good that he makes reckless driving look real. Yeah. However, even on the shooting of those of those two movies, and I believe the Seven Ups as well with Roy Scheider, they almost lost control a few times. Well, Bill and Jimmy Dean had gotten pretty close, actually, and Bill had a nickname for Jimmy, and that was Little Bastard. It was an inside joke, and Jimmy called Bill Big Bastard because he was so much bigger than he was. He was a big dude, so that was where Little Bastard came from, and that's why he wanted it painted on the back of the car there. They were good friends, and they were spending a lot of time together, and uh, like I said, Myla kind of had a falling out at this point with Jimmy. She lost touch with him a little bit. They stayed in touch. They were cordial to each other, but... And this happens to people, the waves of friendship like come and go. And he was on to something else now. And I think this plays into the whole idea of how he had such a lust for life. And now he's learning something new. He's learning how to race cars. And that's where he's going. His focus is shifting around. So that's why he was off with Bill. And he was learning how to race this car because he wanted to race it. And he wanted to win races. On Thursday, September 29th, 1955, after he'd had the 550 Spider for about two weeks, Hickman and Jimmy Dean took it out for a drive, and they headed up the coast on the 101 freeway right along the ocean there, only to have to turn around when some fog came in, and uh, they had to head back south. Apparently, they were speeding. At one point, the California Highway Patrol tried to bust them or give them a ticket, and he easily outran them. He just took off in that car, and they didn't have a chance of catching up. <laughs> so, But that, <laughs> well, that officer was yeah. interviewed. He That's a known fact that he went to mm-hmm. give him a ticket and then just couldn't catch him. That's something advised these days in LA. You have tons of... Helicopters. Freeway chases, yes. yes. Now with helicopters <laughs> and news choppers following all the action. Yeah. Bill was teaching him how to drive for this race that was coming up in Salinas, 300 miles north of LA. That was going to be on Sunday, October 2nd, in just a few days. So he had only a few days to get as good with the car as he could. And also he was wanting to break it in, which was another part of the reason that he would wind up wanting to drive it instead of trailering it to Salinas for the race, because it was so new. He wanted to get the car broken in. And this is true that especially with a new sports car like that, it needs to uh, stretch its legs a little bit before it gets really settled in. So they drove around for hours on the 29th before finally going to have dinner at the Villa Capri, which was James Dean's favorite restaurant. And it wasn't just his favorite restaurant. It was also uh, home of the Rat Pack. Frank Sinatra had made the restaurant famous. Dean Martin, those guys were always there. 
And uh, so Dean went there that night. He got home around 3 a.m. That could have been the night that he bumped into Sir Alec Guinness. We don't really know. At the restaurant? Outside. Remember that story from Alec Guinness was they were outside (laughs) of a restaurant that they couldn't get into, maybe a different one, and then maybe went to Villa Capri. But Villa Capri was not on the Sunset Strip. It was on McCadden Place, so Mm -hmm. um, which is a few blocks in from there. So I'm not really sure about that, but it's interesting to think about. But Dean actually called Mila that night, Mila Nurmi, from Villa Capri around 10.40 p.m., according to uh, Warren Newton Beat's book. They talked about 10 minutes, just, I guess, catching up a little bit. And at the end of it, he said, my dinner's here. I have to go. And that was the last time that she ever spoke to him. The next morning, on Friday, September 30th, 1955, Dean got up. And uh, he trailered the 550 Spider behind his 1955 Ford over to pick up Bill Hickman and then drive over to Competition Motors to have the mechanic and his friend Rolf give it a once-over before they all headed up to Salinas for the Sunday race. And he was, again, planning to drive it up there, and he was going to have the Ford in the trailer follow him. While he was there, photographer Sanford Roth, or Sandy Roth, showed up at the shop. He was working on a photo essay of Dean for the magazine Collier's. Now, it's only because of Roth being there that we actually have pictures of the day that James Dean would die. So Sandy Roth and Bill Hickman would be driving James Dean's 55 Ford up to Salinas, while Dean would drive the 550 all the way there with Rolf in the passenger seat, talking him through how to treat the car and the break-in period and, you know, what's the oil pressure and where should I be revving it and all that sort of stuff. And uh, in fact, on that trip, I guess Rolf had told him, don't try to win, drive for the experience. Rolf was worried that the car was so much more powerful than Dean's Porsche 356 Speedster that he needed to get used to it before he went all out in it. So he's just trying to get him to calm down a little bit, especially with this first race. Another thing that Beath points out in his book, though, was that even though Dean had this reputation for being reckless on city streets, you can't be that way on the track because everything is documented and it goes down against you and you actually wind up not being allowed to race. So that was an interesting fact that I, you know, I feel like I knew in the back of my mind, but it was interesting to hear Beath point that out in his book because you forget that you can't just go around being, you know, crash them up crazy on racetracks. There's really strict rules. There's even rules in sports car club, you know, SCCA, Sports Car Club of America events about uh, you do certain races you can't pass. If you pass somebody, you get kicked out. So there's, you've got to follow all these rules or you're not going to be on the track because it's dangerous enough. Just the idea of racing and following the rules is dangerous. But when you don't follow the rules, they don't want you out there. There is one issue with the 550 Spiders. They have high pivot swing axles, which I'm not going to try and explain here, but basically that means when you're cornering in them, they have severe oversteer, which can result in them spinning out. Oversteer is something that Forrest mentioned a few minutes ago, and if you don't know what that is, if you're not a driving person, oversteer is when you turn the steering wheel and the car overreacts to your input, turning way more than you expected it to, and in a particularly unexpected way, it's very dangerous. And and a car that's a mid-engine or a rear engine, that can lead the car to spin out. And in fact, that's uh, one of the issues that the early 911s had because the engines were way back in the back. That's a rear engine car because the engine's behind the rear axle instead of in front of it. And again, I'm boring people, so I'm going to stop talking. (laughs) Let me me freshen this up with a a real anecdote. Yeah. Another one, if I may jump in here. Please do, by all means. Well, nowadays in Porsches, they have computers to control all this stuff. But in the earlier models, when you race them, you had to know how to double clutch them to race them, drive them fast so that your back end did not spin out. And we had a, a shoot, as I mentioned earlier, I used to work for a company that did promotional marketing videos for Porsche as a client. And I remember this one video shoot, I think it was the first footage I ever saw that I had to transfer at this company. 
And the post-production supervisor said, hey, you want to see some cool footage? Watch this. And it was some handheld video footage of a, a road in Germany up in the mountains. And it was a shoot that Porsche was doing, not for a commercial that would air, but for a internal video, I think, but with some professional drivers. Well, I believe the account guy and the director of photography of one of the one of the camera crew guys during some downtime took the Porsche the camera car out for a spin and in this video you just see you see a little bit of skid mark on the road and then it, the guy filming it goes down into the brush and through this clearing of brush and up to some trees and there's the brand spanking new off the factory floor Porsche on its side up against a tree because Oof. They were driving it fast around a corner and didn't know how to handle it. And the back end with the weight of the engine spun out and that thing just went right into the trees. Yeah. So you must respect them. And nowadays, yes, they have computers that control that and you can drive the car faster without too much worry of, of spinning out. But that was what Porsches were notorious for with the rear engine design. Yeah, you take it right up to the edge, but when you go past the edge, you're going to spin out. initially. And the 550 wasn't a rear engine, it was a mid-engine, but still with these particular swing axles, the high pivot swing axles, that was a danger in that car if you didn't know what you were doing. So on this morning in the garage that uh, Rolf worked at, which was called, I believe, Competition Motors, he was getting the car set up so that they could take it on the trip. James Dean's dad actually stopped by with his brother or, or Jimmy's uncle. And Dean actually wound up driving him around the block a few times, his uncle, And that would be the last time that any of his family would see him alive. And in fact, the last thing that his uncle said to him was, uh, be careful, you're riding in a bomb. That's what he told Mm -hmm. him right before they were to leave town. Uh, This is when the famous Sandy Roth pictures start to come into play. They are the ones we have all seen or will see if we look up James Dean and his 550 Spider. The first one that most people will know is the one of Dean and the mechanic in the car, Rolf, with their arms up over their heads. That was taken before they left Competition Motors. It was just kind of a stage shot as they were heading out for their trip about 1.30 or 2 in the afternoon. Rolf had been working on it. That tells you again about the engine that because they got over there in the morning, I think. I'm not sure on the time. I feel like it was 9 or 10 or something. And he had to work on it for several hours before they even left. Then they stopped at a gas station on Ventura Boulevard. And I have to say, I know this picture. It's a famous picture of Dean standing next to the 550. There are these red gas pumps in the background behind him. He's putting on like one uh, driving glove or racing glove. I've seen this picture a million times. Only now do I notice uh, after studying up on him that his own 55 Ford wagon is in the background right behind the 550. And then the trailer is hooked up to it. You'll see that. But of course, it's empty because the spider's in the foreground. What I didn't realize until we did this episode and I started looking into that location was that I have stood right there in that exact spot with my car right where the spider was dozens upon dozens of times and I had no idea that that's where I was. And it's crazy because it's just a few miles down the road from my house and there's a car wash there that I would go to sometimes. And then next to the car wash is that old gas station and that's where they would pull the cars to dry them off once they came out of the tunnel. And the gas station has a little glass sort of house that was a flower shop. And for those of you that watch Six Feet Under, which I I actually never saw. I know it was a great show. Don't get mad at me, but I never saw it. (laughs) But I understand that there was a flower shop that was prominent in that. It was that flower shop that they used for the location. And when I was there at the time of the, uh, when I was taking my car there to get it washed, the flower shop was called Touch of Romance, I think. And it was still open, but the days I was there, it would be closed or you didn't have to go in there. So you would sit there. 
and then your car would be dried right in front of you. I, so I sat on a little bench in front of what would have been the building for the gas station, uh, and the pumps weren't there anymore, but the, the shelter was still there, and the car would sit right there where the 550 sat and get dried off in front of you. It's just crazy to me how many times I was there and I had no idea, and now we're doing this. Oh, that's it. So here's the other sad thing about that. About four or five months ago, they tore the whole thing down, the car wash, everything, mm-hmm. and they're building some huge who knows what. But um, And it's a tragedy. There's a YouTube video. There's a guy on YouTube, and I, I, I can't – his name escapes me now. His channel escapes me now, but we'll put it in the show notes – who goes around filming these old locations is kind of handheld and he's, but he's very excited about old celebrity places in LA and Hollywood. And, uh, he's making a video where he's like, Oh my God, they're tearing it down. I can't believe they <laughs> torn it down, but he's right to be upset. It's interesting how he covers it. But so that's my little story about actually being there where that picture was taken. And, uh, you, you were a car wash away from historical greatness. Yes. Historical greatness. And now it's gone forever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so not too long after that picture was taken, they were cruising northbound on US-99 when California Highway Patrol Officer Odie Hunter clocked Dean doing around 70 miles an hour. Now, clocking back then, this was before radar guns, this meant knowing the distance between two landmarks and measuring the time it took for a car to pass them, or you could do what's called pacing, where you're following the car. Now, Officer Hunter, I guess, clocked Dean at 70 and then pulled him over, and the way that he did this was uh, Hunter had seen them. There was uh, the 550 was running about 70, and then behind it was the Ford with the trailer. And Bill Hickman was driving the Ford with Sandy Roth in the passenger seat, and Dean was in the 550 Spider with Rolf Wutherick in the passenger seat. So we got Rolf in the passenger seat of the Porsche and Roth in the passenger seat of the Ford. It's confusing, I know. But what so what Officer Hunter did was he pulled in between them and pulled the Porsche over first. So Dean pulled over, got a ticket. He, he, Like he said, he, he clocked them at 70, but he wrote them a ticket for 65. This fact, by the way, has been erroneously reported worldwide as Dean having gotten a ticket for going 100 miles an hour, but he, he didn't. He wasn't ever given a ticket for going 100 miles an hour on that day. Speed limit was 55 where he was, though, and that was enough of a ticket. And according to Beeth in his book, the exchange between Dean and Officer Hunter was respectful with Hunter even asking about the car before he left but he still gave him the ticket. He also ticketed the Ford, which Bill Hickman was driving, also for 65, but that was worse for Bill Hickman because that was 20 miles an hour over 45, which was the top limit you were supposed to go with a trailer. So he was actually speeding, theoretically, worse in the Ford than Dean was doing in the Spider that day. So Dean and Rolf continued on their way, eventually turning west on Highway 466 in the town of Famoso. 466 is now just called 46. It's still there, but it's 46, not 466 anymore. And here's something interesting. If you don't turn off 99 onto 46, you head right up towards the area where Hitchcock shot the infamous airplane scene for North by Northwest. It's right there, only about an hour from where Dean wound up having his accident. So by the way, that gives you a little bit of an idea of the terrain of this area, which is wide open and mostly flat. Dean continued on 466, and as he was driving along, all these people are heading up from Los Angeles to the race in Salinas, and he looks over and spots a Mercedes 300 SL at a gas station. This is a beautiful, hard-to-miss car that, you know, now it's a classic car, but even back then, it was a a rare thing to see, uh, relatively expensive. And this belonged to a wealthy 21-year-old that I mentioned earlier named Lance Reventlow. He was Woolworth heiress 
Barbara Hutton's son. And Dean knew him. They had been in different races together and they were acquaintances. So Dean was joking around with him and another driver who was there telling him that he'd gotten up to 130 miles per hour that day, which is near the top speed of the 550. It's uh, Supposedly its top speed was 135, 137, I think. But after standing around for a pretty good while, waiting for the Ford to catch up because they had gone so far out in front of it, Hickman and Sandy Roth pull in in the Ford with the trailer. Sandy actually comes up to Dean and he's like, well, how do you like the car now? You know, obviously they knew that he had took off in front of them going pretty fast. And Dean told Sandy, I want to keep this car for a long time, a real long time. Uh, That's from page 39 of Beath's book, The Death of James Dean. So at this point, Jimmy's getting a lot more comfortable going fast in the car, and Bill Hickman maybe seems like he's getting a little concerned. It probably worried him how far out in front of he and Sandy that Dean had gotten when he was going so fast. And there was a fair amount of traffic on the road, including a lot of people, like I said, pulling trailers with race cars on them. So he knew Dean was having to do a lot of passing on a two-lane road. It was pretty fast in this relatively new car. So apparently at this point, Bill Hickman told James Dean, quote, be careful of the cars turning in front of you. The spider is hard to see, and it's getting near dark. And then Dean looked at Bill and said, don't worry, big bastard. So that's where we're at now. It's getting a lot closer to the end of the line for Dean, and he's getting a lot of warnings from people, but it doesn't seem to matter. Before they got back on the road, they all decided they were going to stop for dinner in the town of Paso Robles. It's about another hour west of where they were before heading north on the 101 freeway. But it was getting late. The sun was going to be setting around 5.39 p.m., and it would be dark by 6.04 by the time they got to Paso Robles. But right now, they were less than 30 miles from the place that James Dean would die just a half hour or less later. Numerous witnesses reported having been passed by Dean that day, and you can read about all of them in all the books. They've all been talked to. They've all gone on the record. Some said he was doing at least 100 miles an hour when they passed him. Others said less. Others said they couldn't tell, but it was fast. Had he been doing 75 to 100 miles per hour on average, he would have reached Salam in as little as 20 minutes from Blackwell's Corner, which is where he had been chatting with Lance Reventlow and his other friends and had last spoken to Bill Hickman and Sandy Roth. That's how close he was to the intersection. Now, as 466 approaches the little town of Shalam on Friday, September 29th, 1955, it comes upon an intersection you may have heard us mention at the top of the show known as the Y. And one speed Dean was headed straight for it in his brand new 1955 Porsche 550 Spyder that he was hoping to break in before his first big race in it in two days on Sunday. When you try to envision what's happening here and you think about a Y, think of it lying on its side with the single end pointing to your left or west if you're looking at a map. And think of it as a lowercase Y, not an upper, because the southernmost part of it is almost a straight line. Not quite, but it's pretty close. There's another road joining in that comes in diagonally from the upper right and intersects it on the lower left or from the northeast to the southwest. This is California State Route 41. The Y is notoriously dangerous. Although the intersection was updated in 1959 when the road was widened, an island was added and there was a flashing light put in. But back in 1955, only State Route 41 even had a stop sign and it was particularly confusing as to how someone traveling east should best endeavor to turn left off of 466 onto 41 with oncoming westbound traffic on 466 bearing down on them. This night was no different. As the 550 barreled toward the Y with James Dean at the wheel and his mechanic Rolf Wuthering at his side, a 1954 Tudor was approaching from the other direction on 466. 
And the driver of the Tudor was one of those folks who needed to turn across traffic at the Y in front of the Spider to go northeast on 46. The driver was in no particular hurry. No one had seen him speeding on the road that day, but he did seem a bit unsure of himself in the aftermath of what would happen. As that driver of the Ford, 23-year-old Donald Jean Turnipseed, approached the Y, he was already drifting over the center line, possibly projecting his desire to turn across traffic to the northeast. It was then that he saw something. He wasn't sure what it was. He'd probably never seen a car like it in his life, but it was late in the day, and this tiny little car that was so low to the ground was suddenly so close to him that he could not take evasive action. He locked up the brakes in his 3,170-pound car, and it slid for 30 feet, fully into the path of James Dean's approaching 550 Spider. Jimmy cut the wheel suddenly, trying to swerve out of the way of the behemoth American car bearing down on Little Bastard, which weighed much less than half as much as the Ford. No one ever saw brake lights on the Porsche, and the front of the Ford must have looked like a building closing in on Jimmy and Rolf as the two cars collided nearly head-on. Jimmy and Rolf had nothing more than the strength of a large aluminum can wrapped around a small tubular chassis to protect them. The outcome was unavoidable. Crash technology was in its infancy. Neither car was designed to absorb energy. They merely transferred it to their occupants, and this was no different. The last thing Turnipseed saw before the collision was someone's arms going up, just barely peeking above the hood line, as though someone were trying to protect their head from an impact. The 550 did multiple cartwheels as it was flung to the side of the road. It was so badly mangled that even though the car was left-hand drive, the steering wheel now appeared to be on the right side. The driver was trapped partially inside and outside of the car, and the passenger had been completely ejected, laying on the ground six feet away. In an instant, James Dean's life was, or would soon be over, and Dean and Donald Jean Turnipseed would forever be connected in history. That accident closed a chapter on James Dean's life, but it started a new chapter on both his legacy and that of Little Bastard. That's going to wrap up this week's show on James Dean and Little Bastard. We'll be back next week with part two, where we'll talk about the uncanny curse associated with Dean's car after the accident and interview the only man known to have a confirmed actual part of Little Bastard in his possession. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Daniel, her daddy. And I give permission to astonishing legends to use my voice. However, they see they see fake galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.